Hi, I'm Jamil Smith, in for my MTV News colleague, Anna Marie Cox. This is Friends Like These, a podcast about difficult conversations. Since I'm talking from my home state of Ohio, I thought I'd keep this show local. We won't be talking all about Ohio, but both of my guests are friends and fellow Buckeyes. I'll start with my conversation with Wesley Lowry, who went to Shaker Heights High School in suburban Cleveland. Same as me. Wes is a national reporter for the Washington Post, and he covers law enforcement, justice, race, and politics. He's the author of They Can't Kill Us All, Ferguson, Baltimore, and a New Era in America's Racial Justice Movement. It was his idea that in 2015 sparked his newspaper to start tabulating the number of police killings, a job the government wasn't doing. That reporting won the Post a Pulitzer Prize. They're still counting, and as of today, St. Patrick's Day, 219 people have been shot and killed by police in America. Why does it feel like we know none of their names? I talked to Wesley about that and also his recent reporting. Uh, Wes, this past week, you had two really interesting reports. Uh, the first was a, you know, about a documentary that included previously unreleased video footage of Michael Brown on the day that he died. And is also about the policeman who killed him, Darren Wilson. Let's start with the tape. What does it show and why does it matter? So this tape, which had been previously unreleased, shows a new interaction between Michael Brown and Ferguson Market and Liquor, right? So this is the liquor store um, that in the video we had seen previously, he mm-hmm. allegedly robs um, in the moments before the shooting, right? right? Now, this was a video from a few hours earlier where apparently in the early morning or the late night from the night before, around 1.13 in the morning, Michael Brown goes into that same liquor store previously and has some type of interaction with the clerks, right? The uh, filmmaker, uh, Jason Pollock, alleges that this new video shows that Michael Brown was trading them weeds for cigarellos and that he left his cigarellos there. Um, what the prosecutor saying and what the liquor store is saying is that the, no that's not what this video shows rather what this video shows is michael brown attempting to barter and them essentially telling him to get lost um and that perhaps that's why he came back upset the next day is their argument so mm. at the end of the day kind of the upshot is there was a new there was additional video we had not seen uh prosecutors say that it's not particularly relevant to the shooting itself um and that it was framed in a way that was unfair. Other people are saying that this really starts to undo the narrative. Um, but we don't, you know, we don't really know. I mean, my take on this is I think that um, it does seem less significant than it was originally framed to be. But the reality is it is kind of shocking and surprising that there would be any new evidence that we had not seen previously. The idea or the existence of a Michael Brown video that we have not seen and that is just coming to light in 2017 does speak to the concerns a lot of people have always had about this investigation. Were the powers that be locally being forthcoming? What were they doing with information? Were they selectively releasing some and not releasing all of it? This only serves to kind of underscore some of those fears. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, I had two thoughts really on this. Number one is, why didn't we see this before? And number two is why we're seeing this at a documentary that premieres at South by Southwest. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like what? Like, this just seems like an interesting forum to, to debut that particular piece of information. Not in a courtroom, not, say, on the local news, not in a, you know, in a newspaper or website. Uh, no, it's in a documentary that shows, in, you know, in a conference that most people can't afford to attend. What I just don't even understand sometimes what to do with material like this when it surfaces, because it's just about the criminality of Michael Brown, who didn't really 
commit a crime here. He was the victim, <laughs> you know, as a, you know, one way or the other. If you feel like he, you know, deserved to be killed by Darren Wilson, or if you feel like he didn't be, was well, I'm sorry, if you feel like he wasn't deserving of that, he was the victim. Why are we debating his criminality? Of course. Well, and I think that was so much of it. Now, now part of it is important, right? Because what, what people try to frame or the discussion that the people attempt to have is essentially, does the liquor store robbery somehow explain Michael Brown's mindset in the moment? Um, if you can prove that somehow he is kind of unpredictably violent, then that would help explain Darren Wilson's story. Because, I mean, remember, a lot of um, Darren Wilson's story relies on this idea that Michael Brown, after having been shot, turned around and charged him again. Right, right? Um, and that's something that I think for a lot of people um, doesn't pass the smell test. It right? doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, and so therefore the idea is if you can frame Michael Brown as someone who is kind of unpredictably violent or predisposed to some type of violence like this, um, it would begin to theoretically explain why he might do the otherwise, you know, this thing that otherwise seems unrealistic. Right. Now, Darren Wilson, speaking of him, you had a report later on in the week about how that former Ferguson police officer testified that he actually had used the word nigger before. And I found it curious to how he qualified that. Can you go into detail a little bit more about that? Sure. So essentially what happened was after the, the video, um, myself and I'm sure some other reporters started looking back at the um, looking back at the civil lawsuit that's still ongoing. And it's actually interesting that the civil case is still ongoing. Um, this is one of the only major cases where there has not been a settlement, right? Tamir Rice's family has gotten a settlement. Eric Gardner's family has gotten a settlement. Freddie Gray, Walter Scott, right? This, it, the, the city of Ferguson, however, is really fighting um, Michael Brown's family um, in this wrongful death suit. But so in this suit, as it's, as it's playing forward, it's producing new documents. And one document that had kind of been quietly filed that people didn't notice um, was that Darren Wilson had submitted a series of admissions, right? Now, what admissions are is they are the, you're essentially trying to drill into what things do we all kind of already agree on so we don't have to debate them in court? Um, what can we just establish as fact? And so the attorneys for Michael Brown's family send him a list of, you know, 170 or so kind of definitive statements, right? right. Um, and he either admits that he agrees that that is true or he denies it. And so, and, and so this was interesting in part because we have very little from Darren Wilson. He's done one interview with George Stephanopoulos, or two interviews, one with George Stephanopoulos and one with The New Yorker, and then he did, we have his grand jury transcript, but otherwise we've never heard from him. And so anytime he's speaking, especially speaking under oath, it's important to kind of look at, is it consistent with what he said previously? Is there any new tidbits of information? So as I'm looking at this, you know, I largely thought that his admissions lined up with his version of the story previously, but what was new in here was that the attorneys asked him specifically, they asked him, you know, have you ever used the N-word? Um, have you ever... Um, have you ever, you know, have you ever said racist remarks or heard other officers saying racist remarks? And what he says um, in these in these admissions is that yes, he's he's used the N word before to describe uh, black people. However, he clarifies, but I've only done it when I was repeating what someone else told me in the course of an investigation. Right. right. So the idea that um, you know he's interviewing two people and someone says, well, you know, that nigger did X, Y, and Z, and then he repeats it back or something like that. Right. Yeah. The um, and so he says that, 
Um, however, he does not issue that stated qualification when he answers that yes, he has heard his fellow officers using uh, the N word, and he's used and he's heard his fellow officers making racist remarks, right? And so that um, it was just interesting. You know, it's, it's right. hard because we don't have the full context on it, and his attorneys would insist probably that no, he he only did any of these things in the context of investigations. But, um, you know, that he would admit that under oath, I think, was very interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it seemed like he was trying to say, hey, you know, all these other guys are racist. I'm just repeating it in the context of testifying or, you know, giving witness to whatever they may have said. But it just seemed like, (laughs) I don't know, it just seemed like he was trying to really make sure that we didn't think he was racist, which seems to be like the foremost priority you know, for, for white cops uh, when they testify about exactly. you know, killings like this. There was other, there's another report that came out about this Darren Wilson admittance that uh, got a lot of people hyped. And I, know, I saw you debunking some of this. Can you go into detail about what that was? Because I feel like there's a lot of, you know, speculation around this, you know, admittance that, you know, kind of got a little bit out of control. Yeah, so I mean, this is obviously a very emotional case that people still feel very strongly about, an extremely polarizing case, right? There are very few people who exist in any middle on this. Most people either believe that Darren Wilson was completely in the right or that Michael Brown was murdered, like, senselessly. There's very few people who exist somewhere between that. Um, But with this new document, what happened the day after I reported it was there was a report in the route, um, which I like. I know a lot of people over there, and I like this writer typically as well. But there's this report in the route that essentially argued that between the new video as well as this new document, that basically everything you thought you knew about what happened with Michael Brown was wrong. And what he asserted in this piece was that this new um, this new admission sheet showed that Darren Wilson was admitting that Michael Brown had never reached for his gun. Um, now, there's a line in the admissions where uh, Darren Wilson has asked, you know, is it true that Michael Brown never attempted to unholster your gun, right? And Darren Wilson says, yes, I, that, that's true. He never attempted to unholster it. And so people kind of ran with this saying, see, Michael Brown never reached for the gun. This was a lie the whole time. But what was key here was that Darren Wilson's story, even though the media sometimes presented it as such, Darren Wilson's story was never that Michael Brown attempted to take Darren Wilson's gun unprompted out of his holster. The story according to Darren Wilson, um, and in his grand jury testimony in 2014, was that Michael Brown punched him, and so he drew his own gun, pointed it at Michael Brown, and then Michael Brown grabbed the gun, right? And so it it would be able to be consistent that Darren Wilson could say, no, Michael Brown never attempted to unholster my gun, but he also attempted to grab it and did grab it at some point, right? Mm -hmm. And so that is the kind of distinction here. It's, It's difficult because these are, especially in these admissions, which are not narrative documents, they're literally just a series of statements, yes, no, yes, no. Just because something isn't asked about doesn't mean it doesn't exist. You're not responding with any big clarifications. Sometimes you can add a word or two or a sentence, but you're not crafting the whole story. It's really important that, you know, we're really careful with what we say, say that the document says and does not say, right? Because there's much more that's not in it than, the, than is in it. Right. So I had this weird feeling when I read your report and I read even that root item that it was just interesting to see police brutality in the news again. Like, I just feel like it hasn't been something that, you know, in 2015, you know, going uh, basically dating back to Michael Brown's death, 2014, 2015, 2016, to a certain extent. And now 2017, I mean, that post database that you guys have has 219 killings as of today, St. Patrick's Day. Mm -hmm. And I just went through it and I cover this stuff. I follow this stuff 
you know, closely, but it took me even a while to recall, you know, recall some of these names, uh, some of the, you know, especially the black ones. I mean, as someone in the press who covers these issues, can, is there anything that, you know, you, you think that's changed or any reason why? Is this that we're all talking about the president? Is it just, you know, people are getting distracted? Because police brutality didn't just magically end. They, well, I think that's the truth, right? Police brutality has not ended um, at all. But I also think that there's a, um, and nor have police killings stopped or ended, right? In fact, I think we're uh, pacing uh, maybe a dozen or two ahead of where we were this time last year, right? So in fact, year over year, police shootings are up. Um, but the, what's happened, though, I think, is that much of our attention came from media focus. And the reality is that in this moment, so much of what we are focused on, what we are thinking about, what we are talking about is the President of the United States. And the President of the United States is not talking about these issues, and so therefore we are not either. Um, we have to remember even last year. Um, last year was a year where we had Dallas, where we had Philando Castillo, or Keith Lamont Scott in Charlotte, and Seville Smith in Milwaukee. But for the first six months of the year, we basically didn't talk about police brutality or police killings at all. There's not a single name that trended in the first half of the year last year. Right. Um, in fact, it, you know, Alton Sterling is the first um, and that happens in July, right? That so much of our attention was based solely on the presidential election, the primaries, the Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, and Bernie, right? And that's so much of it. You know, you still have activists, I'm talking to them now, who are still doing work in local levels. You still have some of the national activists who are involved in this work. But the reality is, right now, the focus is on Donald Trump. And so we're not paying attention to a lot of other things happening. You know, and that's true on almost any policy issue, right? It's true in criminal justice, it's true sometimes in the environment, it's true on when when there's not a imminent um, theoretical like immigration threat, we're not necessarily talking about that either. Like our news cycle really ebbs and flows and we have difficulty paying attention to things for long periods of time. <laughs> um, we you know, we kind of pay attention while everyone's talking about it and then we look away. Ain't that the truth? I mean but here's the thing, we can't really afford to stop paying attention to this during the Jeff Sessions era. And it's not just about Donald Trump, it's about Jeff Sessions and what he plans to do. Can you tell me a little bit about what he's done so far that, you know, frankly, people should be paying attention to, especially when it comes to police violence? Well, so there's a, um, there are a ton of things, right? And so the, the first is that, you know, uh, Jeff Sessions is just, he, he has often talked um, with an ideology very different than the Obama administration. That's probably to be expected, right? Um, but he has kind of shown and, and stated that he does not think um, that these so-called patterns and practices investigations run by the Department of Justice used extensively uh, under the Obama administration are things that they should continue doing. Um, he's talked about how he thinks the Chicago report and the Ferguson report, both of which he says he did not read, but he talks about how he thinks both of them are just based on anecdotes and, and they're not analytical and so therefore they're unfair to police officers. Um, and so what I think is mo very likely is that we're likely going to see a, a real drop-off in the willingness of the federal government to investigate um, police departments the way they have them. What we've also seen is a market, uh, you know, kind of a marked distance um, and, and difference in what he states his goals and priorities are going to be. So right now, while we've had a Department of Justice that's talked a lot about commutations, has talked a lot about kind of unwinding the drug war, um, what we're seeing now is uh, Sessions talking a lot about how he thinks marijuana legalization has gotten out of control, right? Or he's talking a lot about... Um, you know, wanting to crack down more on, on things like that. Right. That's, which seems like a recipe. For, yeah. Which seems like a recipe for me to, you know, increase mass incarceration. I mean, <laughs> he's not going to bust some, you know, some some white kid in the village who's ordering weed, you know, online. He's, you know, he's going to be busting people who look like us. 
Correct, on the, in the streets, right? And, and, and there's going to get back to a, a disparate and, and, and inequitable enforcement that we've, thought, that we've seen for decades, right? And so I think it's just a very interesting... Um, you know, it's just a very interesting time, and again, it's not a thing that's getting a ton of attention, in part because there's just so much going on, right? You have the fire hose that is the Trump administration. Every day is a new crisis. Every day is a new, drastically differing thing, um, in part because they handle things in a way that's not as traditional as many other administrations, um, and it creates a bit of a confusion every time, and it forces all of our eyeballs to the crisis of the day, which means that sometimes we can kind of lose sight of some of the other things going on. I'm talking with Wesley Lowry, national reporter for The Washington Post and fellow Clevelander. And in that respect, I wanted to ask, I mean, what's going to happen, say, the consent decrees in these cities like ours? You know, Cleveland Cleveland police is operating under a consent decree with the Justice Department, uh, you know, mandating that it improve, you know, that it get rid of its bias or what have you. I'm not sure how you do that. But the point is, is that they are basically contracted with the federal government to make sure that stuff like Tamir Rice and other, you know, police killings do not happen anymore. How do you do that? So, I mean, I think one of the things here is that's going to be important is that in this consent decree process, especially once the decree is in place, you have a local judge who's involved in the process, and I think that's going to be crucial and key in a lot of places, Cleveland specifically, right, where it's not just about the whims of the federal government, but that you do have some local accountability built into consent decree process. However, um, I do think that there's a real question and something that I think a lot of us are eager to follow and figure out is to what extent will the federal government not only stop launching these investigations proactively, but to what extent will they start unwinding um, either decrees that already exist or already in place, or to what extent will they basically look the other way and become apathetic um, to these agreements that are in place, right? Because again, the idea of these consent decrees is that the federal government has concluded you are systemically violating the civil rights of the people um, who live within your jurisdiction, and mm-hmm. that they are deciding they're going to come in and force you to change that, right? When we have an attorney general who's basically said that he doesn't agree with these investigations, that he thinks they're all anecdotal, um, that doesn't provide a lot of you know, hope that he's going to continue enforcing them. Yeah, it just feels like some judge dread shit, you know what I mean, where you have, <laughs> like, I am the law. I'm going to determine whatever the law is based upon my own particular predilections or you know political priorities, and therefore we're going to decide whether or not to enforce it. That just like how I don't know. It's it, I'm I'm signed because I'm frustrated because I know that there's a whole swaths of America that are about to be ignored, you know, by this Justice Department. I mean. You know, you could see already some of the steps that they're taking to, you know, defund environmental justice and all these other different things. But the point is, when it comes to police brutality specifically, we have a federal government that says blue lives matter, literally. Exactly. And it's just going to completely change, I think, the tenor and the tone of the conversation we've been having, right? And I think there is a, you know, there's going to be an effect to that, right? Um, while police really did not like the Obama administration, the ranking file officers did not like President Obama, did not like the stances he was taking or the things his Department of Justice were doing. What they knew was that he was paying attention to them, right? Um, what many people would argue, many people in the civil rights community would argue, is that that type of check and balance is extremely important, right? That local police have a lot of power, and so it's important that they know that the federal government is watching them and not just rubber-stamping anything they want to do or anything they want to say, right? 
that when President Obama would step to the microphones or to a press conference after a, high, a big deal shooting, you know, or high profile shooting, he would say, you know, we need to respect the process, we need to respect our officers, and we want to keep them safe. But then he would also say we need to respect the First Amendment rights of protesters, right? He would say things like that, and what the message that, that sends to the local sheriff or the local police chief is that someone is watching, the federal government is watching, we're paying attention. Now, how will that be different the first time we have a high profile shooting or a high pro, you know, whatever it is, and, uh, you know, Donald Trump gets to the microphone and says, get all those thugs out of the street, right, or whatever it is he says, right? right. What will, how will that empower the local powers that be to behave in ways that perhaps um, exacerbate these situations as opposed to um, rectify them? Look, we, look at what he's already said about Chicago. Chicago, you know, it's a different thing. He's talking there about urban violence, not police violence, but threatening to send the feds into Chicago Presumably, I mean, we don't know exactly what that means. What does it mean? Tanks or, you know, National Guard troops? What, I don't exactly sure know how that's supposed to actually solve the problem as opposed to make people feel better. But that's what he's already threatening to do. So when, say, a police officer is killed or a police officer is, you know, you know, it's done, you know, another Michael Brown happens or another Tamir Rice or Freddie Gray happens. What this administration does, I think, is going to be really telling. I mean, it's just it's obviously we expect that they're going to, you know, just side with the police. But it's about, I think, how vocally and how loudly they do it and also how they use the powers of the government to, you know, support that view. Of course, exactly. And I, th- I just think there's a ton of questions here. Right. And I think that there's a, I mean, again, as a journalist. Um, I think there's a lot to be said for the power that the police have, right? And that the reality is what we know from doing several years of this reporting is that there's just a lot of unchecked power and a lot of scrutiny that does not exist, right? There's not a ton of accountability. Part of that is because our local media has been so decimated by the economy of going back a few decades. Part of it's also that, you know, as Americans, we generally support the police. We can be very patriotic, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's this, um, this hesitancy sometimes to be critical of that institution. Uh, what that means is that you have a lot of officers, a lot of departments that basically get to do whatever they want. And I think it's important. Uh, that we in the media continue to play that role, especially as it as it begins to appear as if the federal government may be less willing to play that role. Yeah. I mean, we can talk a little bit also about writing about race and black death and police violence as black people. I mean, it's I, I don't know about you, but I mean, certainly the Tamir Rice case resonated, you know, particularly harshly with me because of the fact that we're both from Cleveland. We're both kids who mm-hmm. grew up, you know, playing in parks like that. Maybe not with toy guns, but mm-hmm. we, you know, like that scene is very familiar to us. And of now we see like the only person that's been punished is this, you know, announcement last week of an eight-day suspension for the 9/11 operator Constant Hollinger, who violated protocol by failing to inform the officers that you know the 9/11 caller had said that Tamir's weapon was probably fake and that he's probably a juvenile. She conveniently omitted that information, and uh, you know we saw what happened. But I just—it's really tough sometimes. I think in—it's in, particularly that case. I um, mean, you know—you have a kid, literally a child, you know, killed in such a fashion, and just—I just—it's still years later. It's still very hard for me to even like, you know, discuss it. I—it's I amazing. I just want to know how you report about it because it's got to hit you. It does. I mean, I think it does have to, and it, and it, and it does hit. You know, there's this, this the reality, right, that these are hard and painful stories to write about. 
um, that they involve death, they involve pain, they involve controversy, right? Um, what we're often seeing is people who look like us, look like ourselves, uh, not only being killed, but then being villainized in the media and by uh, my law enforcement very often. I mean, I just think that there's, um, these are difficult stories, but I also think they're important stories, right? Uh, and they're important stories not just because or not, or not because reporting on them and telling them are necessarily going to make some type of huge difference today, right? right? Writing about this police shooting isn't what we know is, isn't necessarily going to get justice for the person or for their family. Isn't necessarily going to change the outcome of the investigation, right? Um, it isn't necessarily going to lead to any fewer uh, police shootings, right? But what we know is that it's important, um, and I think it's extremely important, to have an accurate historical record that tells us, uh, you know, what happened and what was happening in these moments. Uh, you know, I, I just think that that, um, I think that matters, right? I think that a decade from now, a generation from now, it's going to be important that um, we can look back at this period of time and we have the most robust accountings of what was happening and what was not. Um, and I think that that's just, I think that's really important. Wesley Lowry, appreciate you taking the time, brother. Thank you. Anytime. You're listening to With Friends Like These with Anna Marie Cox. I'm Anna Marie Cox. I'll be honest with you. I never really got into shaving my legs. I used to say it's because I'm a feminist, and it's true, I am, but also I'm a little lazy. I just never got into it. So when I started buying razors for my husband on a regular basis, I was shocked at how much they cost, which is why I understand Harry's. Harry's was started by two guys, Jeff and Andy, who were fed up with being overcharged for razors. So they decided to start their own razor company to give guys everywhere what they deserve, a great shave at a fair price. They bought a factory with 100 years of blade making experience so they could make their own high quality razors, sell them online and ship them directly to you for half the price of the leading brand. Harry's razors include everything you need for a close, comfortable shave. They sent me a box for my husband, and I got to say, it's a really nice presentation. I tried to take credit for it as a present. It's five German-engineered blades, a lubricating strip, flex hinge for a comfortable glide, a trimmer blade for hard-to-reach places, and a weighted ergonomic handle. All of this for $2 a blade compared to the $4 or more you'll pay at a drugstore. Harry's is so confident in the quality of their blades, they want you to try their most popular trial set for free. It comes with a razor handle of your choice, a five-blade cartridge, and saving gel. Free when you sign up. Just pay a small fee for shipping. To redeem your free trial offer, go to harrys.com slash friends right now. Again, that's harrys.com slash friends. Change is a funny thing when it requires politics to happen. We want it so fast, yet our system isn't really built for fast change. Our current president is running into those obstacles now, even though it doesn't really feel that way. I talked to my friend Jessica Bird, who I was introduced to years ago by our mutual friend Allison McQuaid. Jessica wears two really important hats. She leads a Washington, D.C.-based political consulting firm called Three Point Strategies, and she's the campaign director for Democracy in Color. I wanted to talk to her about what those entities do, and also how Michael Brown's killing sparked her to take this direction with her work. Okay, Jess, tell me what Three Point Strategies does. So Three Point Strategies um, is actually two years old. Um, Congratulations. Week. Yes. Thank you so much. Um, and, you know, we like to say that we work at the intersection of social justice and electoral politics. And so we really primarily live um, in three spaces, serving people of color communities and people of color candidates via training um, and, uh, you know, uh, 
hiring campaign managers to work on the campaigns of races we really love. We also provide candidate services to bold, visionary, progressive leaders. Um, and then we kind of do this programmatic uh, work, which is how I got connected to Democracy in Color, which is thinking about systemic change um, to open the path for, for more people to be involved in our democracy. So basically, you're looking to get more people of color involved in politics, either electorally or just, I guess, in the movement, or I guess, or, or just that's, making sure people right. get out and vote, things like that. Okay. Yes, much more succinct. So, <laughs> so one thing about Three Point Strategies, you wrote a really interesting note on Medium uh, the other day about your two-year anniversary. And I, there's two very different things that I'm wondering about. And I just wanted to ask mm. you, and how did Michael Brown's death change you? And how did it change your career? It's such a good question. Um, well, it changed me personally. Uh, it changed everything. You know, I've been, a, I would say, a politicized person for a long time. My mom was a poll worker uh, for 30 years at the same polling location, and, and I literally grew up seeing her go to the polls and help people vote on Election Day. Um, but it but I would say that I really took a very democratic route. You know, I was I was raised and trained via Democratic Party uh, in Ohio. Um, my, my first races were for state house reps in you know the Ohio Democratic Caucus. I worked for um, Barack Obama. I I worked was working at a large Democratic PAC, and so at the time in 20, in August 9th, twenty fourteen. You know, I really felt like I was contributing. I was going out, working on races. I was eating pizza all day long. I was writing <laughs> campaign plans. Um, but but what um, that moment, what the Ferguson Uprising meant for me was really thinking about how electoral politics could mean transformative change, not just winning, but could actually help to transform our communities um, via politics via public policy and um, via representative leadership. And so I started to ask myself really big questions. And I remember so distinctly just scrolling Twitter for days and days and days and, you know, continuously seeing the photo of, of him um, laying in the, in the middle of the street. And I just thought, if the only thing that I'm doing is beating Republicans, then that's not enough. That's mm. just not enough. And, um, and so I, I really took a leap of faith. And what I will say is that um, the way that it has changed me politically, or I'm sorry, professionally, to, to the second part of your question, is right. that it has forced me to have a deeper understanding of public policy that truly loves black people and governs in a way that people of color and our families can lead meaningful lives. And so that has meant not working with all Democrats. It has meant not working with progressive organizations who I believe are leading in inherently racist ways. It means calling out our friends on on the left and saying, you didn't endorse in this race um, and because your process is racist. And so um, it has meant everything about the way that I approach my work and about the way that I also try to push from the inside. Right. Now, that's actually one thing I wanted to ask you about, which is. Democracy in color focuses only on Democrats. It doesn't mess around with Republicans. It's not Republic in color. Uh, and for a good reason. You know, why bother, you know, with a party, frankly, that doesn't bother with us. But the focus on Democrat, is it better to, you know, have that acute focus to hold Democrats to account? Absolutely. Right. I mean, 
part of the, the uh, piece of this work is that um, it's not just the right thing to do to build not only a party, but a democratic process that's inclusive of all the people who live in our country. But it's also the winningest thing to do. In the last 50 years, we've had a, an incredible population explosion that has meant that the demographics of our country are just different. And while a lot of people talk about it, and they talk about how awesome that makes us, and that, you know, truly we are a, a country at which we, you know, could build this, this incredible tent where everyone can live in harmony, we actually have to then change our formulas at which we govern, change our formulas at which we lead campaigns, and change our formula at which we, we think about what people need in order to be included. And so what Democracy in Color really was, was a call to action to the Democratic Party to say, your formulas are outdated. And to be honest and take it a step further, your leaders are outdated. We need culturally competent staff willing to take a fresh look at the ways in which our population has changed and the ways in which voters are actually getting to our party. And we have to build the home that they deserve. And until we truly do that and build the home we deserve, we'll lose. And who is the most hurt when we lose and when we forfeit the opportunity to govern our communities? Well, it's people of color and folks who live at the margins. And so, um, you know, democracy in color was this both and. It was, one, it's the right thing, so let's just do it. And two, we can't win unless we do. And our families need for us to win. Yeah. I mean, I just feel like Democrats have had, you know, this moment of introspection forced upon them by the election of Donald Trump and that, you know, too much of the coverage, at least in the press, has been about um, what Democrats did wrong, not necessarily what certain Democrats have been doing right and weren't listened to. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it's not like that's a great point. You know what I mean? I feel like there's there's a lot of Democrats who have said, uh, "Hey, uh, black women came out and voted for Hillary Clinton in force, and you know yeah. numbers went up in certain communities." And well, you know, there wasn't enough examination also of the effect of a Voting Rights Act that had been crippled by the Supreme Court and the first okay. presidential election in 50 years without that. So, I mean, we, when you see all of that introspection happening, especially through the press, what's your reaction as a political professional to how people are interpreting what the Democrats did wrong and what they're doing right? Mm, I love this question. I do my best. <laughs> <laughs> when it, I mean, the postmortems of this election are really, really frustrating. Um, and, and one of the reasons is because it's complicated in that there's no one reason why Democrats lost at the national level. But what we do know is that there hasn't been an honest debrief also um, at the national level about what really happened. And that's particularly because we had these huge scandals, and, and rightfully so, like Russia hacking our elections, um, the DNC hack, the, um, the Comey letter, like those are really important factors in understanding the timeline and, um, you know, voters' reactions to a national election. But what, what we also, though, didn't spend a lot of time debriefing and talking about was the level of resources that have been, that were spent by the uh, presidential and or national campaigns uh, engaging voters of color specifically around issues that they care about. For right. the most part, the, the, the national election felt like a, um, you know, 
we we're better than when than Donald Trump. Um, or, like, or like Donald Trump is so horrible that you really have no other choice and therefore vote for us. Is that what you think? Absolutely. Thinking? Absolutely. And, you know, I, I feel unafraid to say that um, I tried to sound the alarms so many times and so, so many of my colleagues who are specifically working in this space did as well. You know, I spent the spring and the summer um, leading a project called the Pathway Project, which was a little bit more of a quiet project because I was training um, people of color led like radical organizations to think about voter engagement, right? So to think about how mobilizing voters could also help them to base build for the issues that they care about when that time came. And I was talking to hundreds of young black and brown uh, people in cities and in, and in battleground states. And in every single room that I was in, I felt this um, very scary lack of interest in the presidential election. And so I would, I would come from those rooms and I would reach out to someone on the presidential. I'd reach out to someone in the larger party. And I would say like, it is frighteningly scary. And these are the questions that they're asking me. And so like, let me tell you so that we can craft some messaging around it. And there was a literal refusal, um, based on this idea that like, how could anyone be questioning the president, the Democratic presidential uh, nominee, when Trump exists, and it's like, well, that's not the right question. The right question is, how can we talk to our people? Hmm. And so, um, and that's the question. The Democrats. It's it's amazing that black folks are by far. You would say. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. The most loyal constituency Democratic yeah. Party has. <laughs> yes. And you haven't figured out how to talk to them yet. Why is yeah. that? You, you, someone, at some point, you would think that they would say, hmm, maybe it's us. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, part of um, what we're seeing right now as, um, you know, 45 rolls out uh, his budget or also as, um, you know, congressional Republicans show their willingness to really slash programs that we care about is that people are saying your budget is a moral document which I totally agree with. <laughs> and I think that we can apply that to campaigns as well. Where did they spend their money? At what point did they spend their money? Did they put organizers in communities where they knew were democratic, but who needed, who needed to talk specifically about the issues? Um, everything about a campaign demonstrates its values. And so if we were to ask for receipts, on the timeline at which organizers were on the ground, at the level at which organizers were asked to engage with voters, and the resources that were spent specifically talking to those voters about the issues they cared about, I think that we would find our answer, which is that their budget didn't match their, the words that they were saying to us, which is that they cared about us when we really couldn't, we couldn't feel their presence. Mm. I want to get back to this moment of change, because I think it ties into what we've been talking about here with, you know, I guess animating the black voter, talking to black voters. We have the immediate rage that comes out of these flashpoint events like Michael Brown's killing. You know, it became political action immediately on the streets of Ferguson. But the political mm -hmm. action, as you know, it is a long haul. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And so right. how do we I, I'm just wondering how we reconcile the need for immediate results with the reality that politics takes a long time to make any kind of real change? Well, if I figure this out, then I have found the key to the universe <laughs> <laughs> and everything we need. You know, I think 
part of starting uh, Three Point Strategies for me was to explore this question and was really to explore the intersection of our movement and the ballot box. And, you know, I believe that there, I not believe, I know that there are historical, social, social cultural, systemic reasons why um, people are dismayed by our system. And so I am never in the business of convincing people that, um, they should be a part of a system that doesn't value them. But what I know is also what happens when we engage in the system and the, the type of change that we can create. One of those examples, you know, I think is, is Kim Fox, who is the um, uh, new Cook County district attorney. I may have gotten that that wrong. Yeah. Um, no, 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 no. But you, you, she, yeah. you know, was really rallied around by black activists in Chicago who were specifically organizing around the Buy Anita campaign about Anita Alvarez, who covered up, the, you know, the murder of Laquan McDonald. And um, one of the first things that she did um, this year after being inaugurated was to get rid of debtor jail policies and said that people who have a bail of under a thousand of a thousand dollars and under cannot be left in jail, and that saves our people. And I think that those examples of um, engaging in the system with an outcome is something that allows us to move our theory for ch- a theory of change along. And so my ask is that, you know, people not only engage because I do believe that it is an empowering and an exciting uh, thing to do, but also because it has transformative effects on um, whether our people live or die, really. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's and like, I did want to yeah. give another example, too. Sorry. Oh, go ahead. yeah, go ahead. No, please. Well, you know, I'm just, I just came freshly off of the St. Louis mayor's race, which was, which was one of the most fun and, and motivating uh, races that I've spent time on. Um, but this was one of the first races, uh, I would say first national races outside of the presidential since November that people really started to question how movement and electoral politics were coming together. And what we know is that um, STL Vote was a uh, coalition of activists who came out of the Ferguson uprising who specifically mobilized around Tashara Jones, the city's um, treasurer, to run for office because they believed in her policies and, and because she really had been an advocate for them. Uh, even from the treasurer's office, which I know sounds sounds rare, um, mm-hmm. she came 888 votes from being the mayor of St. Louis. And more more importantly, though, I mean, one, I feel you know, 8,000 ways about about why she lost, but is now they're engaging in an effort to do 365 civic engagement using this example of the mayor's race and what what was possible. Um, to also engage in other ways of accountability. And so that's just an example of what we can do when we when we think about electoral politics. <laughs> I'm really happy that I have friends who are really willing to get into this fight because I feel like in my role as a journalist, my role is to observe and to tell stories about this. And, uh, you know, frankly, it looks really, really hopeless at a lot of times. You know what I mean? And especially mm-hmm. when you have a president who's elected, who, you know, does the things that he does. But even he is learning that politics 
takes a long time to change things. I mean, yes, he's issuing travel bans, you know, for Muslims and, you know, that are getting rejected by courts and, you know, whatnot. And he's finding out that there are actually some obstacles out here to stop him from just doing whatever the hell he feels like doing. And I think that, you know, there is something we can take away from that, that change takes time. And yeah, uh, yeah it's not just movement politics. So- it's actual politics. Absolutely. Well, so, I mean, I, I agree with you. And, you know, an, an important reflection for me has been that I was doing this work um, at the down ballot, specifically with communities of color, for years before I could even fathom that a, a Donald Trump would exist. And it has been important to me in this time where everyone is trying to figure out how to both resist, but also how to contribute to um, to what's needed now. That I remember that my work started before he and his in his incompetence, and it will last and be needed long after. And for me, um, down ballot. Um, Local elections have always been where change happens. You know, I've been working on mayor's races for the last several months. Um, you know, your mayor oversees your budget, which includes housing policy, which includes policing and whether your police force is expanded. Um, and, and your city council oversees the, the type of zoning that you have in your city. And, and we know that largely people of color communities are living inside cities. And so, I have always drawn my inspiration from the way that people wake up in the morning and will go to um, an office and be really thoughtful and innovative about the way to keep people employed and to bring new tech and to um, expand public transportation. Um, And so I encourage anyone who's even listening right now to Google who some of your elected representatives are, especially if you're living in a major city. They're the folks who are going to be the shield between you and the federal government. And so we need to either support them or get the right ones in office right away. Indeed. What I want to also just close with is just we're both from Ohio. We both, uh, you know, have a lot of pride in being from Ohio. And yes, yes. Oh, duh. (laughs) (laughs) And what I wanted to ask you is, um, you know, starting out in this state and in in in, what did you learn from your time here? Um, What did you what do you feel like America can learn about what Ohio is? You know, you have Cleveland, you have Columbus, you have Cincinnati, you have these three very concentrated democratic constituencies. And then you have the rest of the state essentially. Absolutely. Um, what do you, Oh, what, I love Ohio. Yes, we love um, it. But do, do we understand it? That's the question. <laughs> no, I don't think we do. Ohio is such a microcosm of, um, of this future that we so we so badly are trying to figure out, which is how to include all of us in uh, a governance uh, platform or in in our parties. Um, one of the things about growing up in Ohio is that you know I went to predominantly black high schools. I um, lived in a working poor neighborhood and knew very much so that our state was diverse, not just racially, but specifically economically, and that there were a lot of different trades going on around me, right? So, like, I learned in high school about what it meant to be a farmer in in the state of Ohio while also understanding that I lived in, like, 
a a metropolitan city where 50,000 college students were going and that there were very specific policies that meant that young people should be staying in in our city. And so it helped me as an organizer to be thoughtful about the reasons why people come to any political table. We also did, um, and one of the reasons why there are so many of us in politics is that there, every four years, there's a, a huge amount of spotlight on Ohio and the way that we're organizing, and I would even say a huge amount of resources that are spent on engaging Ohio voters. And so um, I really was trained to, um, to think bigger and to mm. think about my impact in a way that wasn't just local, but that could potentially be the tip of the spear in national politics. And um, even if you aren't blessed and from Ohio, I do hope that you think about yourself inside this puzzle of, um, of the ways in which, you know, your vote or your engagement in the system really could swing a, uh, a national culture change in our politics. And I just want to give a shout out to my brothers, Peter and David, <laughs> who, who are still in Ohio. Yes, they're still here and presumably okay. Yes, <laughs> um, they're perfect, actually. Oh. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, Jess, it was really good to talk to you. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. All right. That's all for this week. Special thanks to Dave Woodward of Childers Media, who opened his doors to me here in Lima, Ohio, and helped us get this podcast recorded. Anna will be back hosting with friends like these next week. Until then... I hope that you keep having some difficult conversations of your own.